Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello everyone, in this episode we are going to walk through the book of Enos. Enos is a popular book in the Book of Mormon, at least in part because it's so short. After getting through the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi and the allegory of the olive tree in Jacob, you get this real sense of accomplishment as you start ticking off books a chapter at a time. Enos, Jerem, Omni, Words of Mormon. The tendency can be to rush through these books so that we can get into Mosiah and pick up with a familiar storyline again. But we'll be missing a lot if we don't slow down a bit, about 200 years in fact. Enos is also popular because of the familiar story it tells. Enos is a vivid writer. He uses striking language to describe something that each of us struggles with, connecting to God through prayer, hearing his voice, and repenting of our sins. It's incredibly relatable, especially for youth who are still coming to know the Book of Mormon and their faith in God. So with that, let's jump right into verses 1 through 18, where Enos tells us of the wrestle that he had with God before receiving a remission of his sins. First, he orients us a bit. I, Enos, he says, was taught in the language of my father, Jacob. This is very similar to how Nephi begins his book. He says he knows that his father was a just man. He didn't just teach him the language of his ancestors. He nurtured him and admonished him in the gospel. That's an interesting pairing. We're maybe more familiar with the concept of nurturing than admonition. But in 1828, admonition is defined as gentle reproof, counseling against a fault. Jacob both cared for and corrected his son, just as he did with the people of Nephi in general. That brings us back to Jacob being a just man. Justice isn't about enforcement. It's about balance and order. It's related to the idea of integrity or integration. When things are properly ordered, they are integrated and just. When they aren't, they are disintegrated and unjust. At times, we need nurturing, and at others, we need correction. Who do you know who is a just person? Who loves you enough to correct you without making you question their commitment to you? How can we develop the qualities of a just person? Jacob will play a major role in his son's repentance. The Book of Mormon has a number of these father-son pairings, where the father's words end up leading the son to the Lord. Lehi and Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Alma and Alma, Mosiah and his sons, Alma and his sons, and so forth. There's some beautiful examples of this process. Father-son relationships can tend to be competitive and contentious, but the Book of Mormon gives us another model. Even as we recognize that, we can recognize the almost non-existent stories of the impact of mothers. Hopefully we'll get those stories someday. Enos, remember that Enos is probably named after Zenos in some way. Anyways, Enos tells us that he went into the forest to hunt beasts. Hunting requires time, patience, silence, skill, observation, tracking. It's an involved process. While he's engaged in this process, he says that the words that his father had often spoken of eternal life and the joy of the saints sunk deep into his heart. We might want to reach out for a farming metaphor here, like the allegory of the olive tree or Alma 32, but I'm going to go with the hunting metaphor, since it seems more appropriate. We can imagine Enos, there with his bow, stalking his prey so that he could sink his arrow deep into its heart. But instead, his father's arrow found its mark. He was pierced. Try as he might, he couldn't ignore that these words went all the way through him. And what was the subject of those words? The idea of atonement, 
unity, covenant fulfillment, a new way of being joyful with each other and with God. Immediately there's a conflict. Enos has been pierced. His soul now hungers for more than just meat. It hungers for joy. But joy isn't something that you can get simply by stalking it effectively. No longer the hunter, he becomes the creature kneeling before his creator. He's pierced. He's wounded. He starts to cry out all the day long and well into the night in mighty prayer and supplication for his own soul. You might think that I'm taking this hunting metaphor too far, and maybe I am, but Enos describes this prayer as a wrestle, a struggle. He lets us know that he's hunting. His father's words sunk deep. He hungers. He cries out. These aren't passive words. Whatever stability he felt thus far in his life is gone. He knows that the joy his father has spoken of is real, and he knows that he doesn't have it. He's come to the realization that Jacob wanted the people to come to, that he is of the dust. But unlike Sherem, who literally dies as a result of being struck with this realization, Enos wants to become a new creature. He wants a new life. So he goes to his maker. In a sense, both he and Sherem die. Sherem physically dies knowing that he has sinned but fearing that he is irredeemable. Enos's death, on the other hand, is more like the death that we are supposed to experience at baptism. Adam Miller, in his book, An Early Resurrection, Life in Christ Before You Die, describes the choice to be baptized as the choice to speed up death and judgment, knowing that you will be found sinful, but hoping in the redemption and resurrection available through Christ. So from then on out, you live as if you've experienced an early resurrection. You are a new creature in Christ. I think we're getting something similar out of Enos. If you doubt Enos's desperation, just think, When's the last time you were in the wilderness and prayed all the day and into the night? I've tried. It's difficult to focus if you aren't acutely aware of your woundedness. Enos's desperate faith gets an answer. Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou shalt be blessed. I hope you know what it's like to feel these words. It truly is like an early resurrection. Even though it's dark outside, Enos's sun has just risen. And he says, And I, Enos, knew that God could not lie. Wherefore, my guilt was swept away. That can be the most difficult part of repentance, trusting that we are redeemable. Remember, faith in Christ is not belief in the fact that he lived, suffered, died, and resurrected. It's trust that the impact of those actions are real and powerful and available. Perhaps that is why faith must come before repentance. Repentance without faith is Sherem dying. Repentance with faith is Enos' old life dying and Enos receiving a new life through Christ's grace. Enos then asks the Lord, how is it done? Faith isn't knowledge. Enos doesn't understand the process. He's just trusting that this new life he's felt isn't imaginary, and he wants to understand. The Lord responds, because of thy faith in Christ, whom thou hast never before heard nor seen, and many years pass away before he shall manifest himself in the flesh. In other words, it wasn't your woundedness or your guilt that got you through. It was your faith. Continuing with the hunting metaphor, the Lord says, Go to, thy faith hath made thee whole. He's no longer a mortally wounded prey. He's a new creature in Christ. The Lord's words here make me think of the woman with the issue of blood. You remember the story. Jairus, the leader of the local synagogue, has a daughter who is dying, and he pleads for Jesus to come and heal her. As Jesus and his apostles are en route, pressing through the crowds on a busy street, Jesus feels the strength go out of him. And he asks his apostles, who touched him? The apostles are like, uh, literally everyone is touching you. Then Jesus turns to a woman 
who has been cast aside by her community because she is unclean. She had been starved for connection with others and thought if she could just touch Jesus' robes, she could be healed and clean again. Jesus attends to her, saying, Thy faith hath made thee whole. Jesus then continues on and brings the daughter of Jairus back to life. I don't want to beleaguer the point, but here again we see why Jesus is the life, the light, and the resurrection for us all. Life in Jesus is a new life. It's being welcomed into a new human family. It's being given hope where there isn't any. Wholeness is not just about physical healing. Like being pierced by the wounds of mortality, wholeness goes all the way through us. Enos doesn't just give us a model of what the repentance process could look like. He shows us what a life in Christ is concerned with. The command is to go to. Well, go to what? What are we supposed to do now that we have this new life? Enos shows us. He starts to struggle in the spirit for his people. Now, I don't think we should imagine that this happens all at once. Going forward, I think Enos is describing a process that takes time, even years. But it isn't enough for Enos to be redeemed. Just as Joseph Smith said, a man or woman filled with the love of God is not content with blessing his family alone, but ranges throughout the whole world anxious to bless the whole human race. That's what we are seeing here. After he obtains a promise for the Nephites, he then prays and labors diligently with many long strugglings for my brethren the Lamanites. So what do you notice about Enos' new life? What's his concern? What does he now have hope in that maybe he didn't before? What is the love of God leading him to do? His final concern, and it's linked with the concern for the Lamanites, is that the Nephite record would be preserved. The Nephite efforts to restore, I love that word, the Lamanites have been in vain, so he's hoping that at some future day, the Lamanites will be restored using the Nephite record. I hope that casts new light on how we think about the work of the restoration. It isn't just the restoration of a church, or scripture, or priesthood, or ordinances. Really, it's the restoration of people, of a family, to a covenant relationship with each other and with God. Faith looms large in this book, and it's a messy, imperfect faith, but it's also powerful. It's powerful enough to get answers from God, and it's powerful enough to receive promises and to renew covenants. It's not, however, powerful enough to make other people's choices for them, or to shield us from living in a mortal world. That brings us to verses 19 through 24, where Enos gives us a rundown of the state of things between the Lamanites and the Nephites. This is one of those places that reminds us that Enos is still a human. He struggles and labors for the Lamanites and... He also has some prejudices towards them. His image of the Lamanites is that they hate the Nephites. They have an evil nature. They've become wild, ferocious, bloodthirsty, full of idolatry and filthiness, feeding on beasts of prey, dwelling in tents, wandering about without clothes, looking wild, violent, only eating raw meat and continually seeking to destroy the Nephites. On the other hand, the Nephites were farmers, they cultivated all kinds of food, they domesticated animals of every kind, in short, they were civilized. Now I'm not saying that all things were equal between these two people, or that Enos is somehow lying to us. I'm just saying that he's clearly a Nephite. In fact, I'm saying that the whole Book of Mormon is clearly a Nephite record. All throughout the Book of Mormon, one of the primary ways that Nephites refer to themselves is the people of Nephi. Now, that might just be a manner of speaking, you know, to mix it up, like Americans versus citizens of the United States of America. 
But it's striking that we never, not once, hear the Lamanites described as the people of Laman. Maybe I'm making more out of this than I should, but to my mind, the thing that's missing from Enos' description of the Lamanites is any sense that they had real lives, families, or any other concern besides murder. And to be honest, that might have contributed to the ineffectiveness of the Nephites' restorative efforts. Just think, the first time we see any real restoration of the Lamanites to the covenants, it's by a group of princes who literally walk away from their father's throne, as well as the mocking of their own people, to go and live among the Lamanites. And out of that group, the one who really figures it out, Ammon, didn't start by trying to change anything about his Lamanite hosts. He simply asked to be a servant. Ammon cracks the code, so to speak. We'd gain a lot of wisdom by following Ammon's lead in our efforts to gather Israel. Getting back to Enos, he doesn't let the Nephites completely off the hook. And from his description, man, are they prideful. That same pride that Jacob ran up against is persistent. And Enos says that there was nothing, save it was exceeding harshness, preaching and prophesying of wars and contentions and destructions, and continually reminding them of death and the duration of eternity, and the judgments and the power of God and all these things, stirring them up continually to keep them in the fear of the Lord. I say that there was nothing short of these things that would keep them from going down speedily to destruction. That's not great. And we'll see that the prophets can't act as a firewall for much longer. Like the monkey who won't let go of the nut, even though holding it means he can't remove his hand from the trap. These Nephites will cling to their pride and their sense of superiority, even when it leads to their destruction. And it will. Finally, Enos wraps up his book in verses 25 through 27. He says that it's been 179 years since Lehi has left Jerusalem. That's about the time between now and when Joseph Smith restored the church in 1830. What we now have is the last generation who remembers anyone from the original family of Lehi dying off in the Book of Mormon. Records are important, but there's still a cost to that loss. We as a church are kind of at that point right now. President Monson was called into the Quorum of the Twelve by David O. McKay, and David O. McKay was called by Joseph F. Smith, Hiram's son. So we're probably right about at that point when anyone who knew any of the original pioneers, and certainly any of the original first generation of the church, is dying off. Interestingly enough, just like Jacob begins and ends his book with references to Psalm 95, Enos also begins and ends his book with references to Psalm 95, saying, and I soon go to the place of my rest, which is with my Redeemer, for I know that in him I shall rest. I encourage you to go and read Psalm 95. It's not long, but it clearly meant something to Jacob. And at the very least, Enos is honoring his father, trying to emulate him, even with his last words. He finishes by saying, And I rejoice in the day when my mortal shall put on immortality, and shall stand before him. Then shall I see his face with pleasure, and he will say unto me, Come unto me, ye blessed. There is a place prepared for you in the mansions of my Father. Amen. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom.